Welcome to the party, pal. The Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, across the world on the interwebs at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. It is The Michael Dukes Show. Welcome to the program and good morning to you. Thursday edition of the big radio broadcast where we try to entertain, educate, and enlighten. And probably in those three, probably in that order, it's, uh, you know, infotainment, right? That's the thing. The thing. Um, it's what we try and do anyway here every morning on the program, and we appreciate you coming in and joining us. Welcome to the 6 O'Clock Club. I haven't talked about the 6 O'Clock Club in a while. You are an official member. If you're listening to the sound of my voice right now live and not on the podcast, which is available after the show, but if you're listening live... You, my friend, are a member of the 6 O'Clock Club. You got up early enough to listen to this discussion, and uh, congra- congratulations. You are an official member of that uh, of that club. So uh, good morning, 6 O'Clockers, and welcome to the program. All right. Um, what, is, uh, what, is on, what is on our – what is the agenda, the agenda looking like today? Well, the agenda today uh, starts off with a few headlines. As always, we like to start off the show with everything that happened overnight or since the show yesterday, just to kind of give you a, a, a clue, uh, a feel for what's happening. And then uh, after we get into some headlines, we will uh, pick up a discussion here on what took place in the House on the budget with Representative Ben Carpenter, who um, uh, had some good things to say on the floor of the House. I don't know if you've been catching some of the highlights or seeing some of the things that were said. But there was some interesting discussion uh, on the floor uh, during the debate on the budget. Uh, Some of the things that we've talked about here on the program as well, uh, and I'm looking forward to kind of going over that and talking about that here in just a minute. We will pick things up with Ben Carpenter. At about 20 after or so this morning, uh, right after the first commercial break, we'll uh, come back and be talking with him about everything that happened during the uh, discussions and uh, where where do we think we go from here? And we'll talk about those philosophies and and everything else. And then in hour two, uh, we'll open up the phone lines. We may hear from another. I had some guests signed, lined up for today, and the whole thing blew up in my face yesterday, late yesterday, and in fact, late late last night after I went to bed, I got I woke up to a slew of text messages this morning uh, that said, uh, "Sorry, not going to be able to join you today." And so uh, we'll open up the phone lines an hour or two and uh, just talk with you, the listeners, maybe about some of the things that we've been talking about all day, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, what are some of the big headlines that uh, you need to know about? Uh, mostly State of Alaska stuff, although I did note that, uh, that the, t- the top story on Drudge this morning uh, is this shock poll 
that came in, uh, the UK Daily Mail is reporting on it, that Biden's approval ratings have cratered. It's a Quinnipiac University poll released uh, late yesterday that his approval rating stands at just 33 percent. 33 among independents, 26 percent among independents. Uh, ow. <laughs> ow. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's painful. Uh, painful. Um, so, uh, anyway, that was one of the, that was one of the big uh, headlines that, uh, hit my, got my attention this morning, just off of the Drudge Report. And of course, other, th- other things going on. Ukrainian war still blazing along. Um, and in fact, the Ukrainians now are, um, Ukrainians are claiming victory, um, uh, in a short run battle, uh, on the Black Sea with a, a missile attack apparently against the Russian flagship. Remember that Russian flagship that that came up on Snake Island and told all the, the soldiers to surrender and they told them to go pound sand or screw themselves or something along that lines? Same ship, same ship. The Moskva, which uh, was uh, the Ukrainian or the Russian flagship, uh, now burning at sea. They had to evacuate. I don't know if they've got it under control yet or not, but... Uh, Anyway, so I guess good on them, um, but uh, this uh, thing continues to slog on, and we'll let you know if anything changes on that during the program this morning. Um, some of the other stories include uh, this news. Brad Keithley mentioned this the other day, and I didn't really think anything about it. Uh, he mentioned that James Brooks from the Anchorage Daily News, who is one of the uh, he is the state political reporter who goes to Juno every session and follows what's going on down in Juno and then reports on it. Uh, we've had, we, the, the royal we, the program, we here on the program have had some uh, issues with some of the reporting that James has done um, on some of his, uh, some of his stuff. Uh, but he writes a good piece overall. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've at least appreciated him being there, although it's pretty obvious that he, it's pretty obvious where his leanings lie. Well, it turns out that um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. He's heading off to create a new, um, a new news bureau with Andrew Kitcherman from the KTOO. Uh, the two of them are creating what is uh, the, the new state's newsroom bureau. Uh, ironically enough, uh, Suzanne Downing did some. Uh, did some investigative stuff on this. Turns out that the state newsrooms is a uh, is kind of a, 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 a nationwide phenomenon. They're journalist activists who are creating what they call progressive newsrooms. In fact, in the early iterations of this um, of this uh, state's newsrooms bureaus that are being you know popping up all across the United States, um, they like it, they actually identified themselves as a um, as a progressive. Uh, how did they put it? Um, uh, as a progressive uh, uh, group. I'm sorry, a progressive political journalism startup. That's how they have referred to themselves in past jobs postings, and they're funded by a bunch of <clears throat> left leaning. Um, uh, foundations and uh, um, and funds 
including the Hopewell Fund and Arabella Advisors, and uh, a lot, a lot more, uh, a, a lot more stuff. Anyway, it looks like we're going to get yet another left-leaning news organization providing us news in the state. But at least, I guess they're going to. I guess, I guess, at least that's one way of coming clean and saying he's not really biased, or that he really is biased to begin with. Anyway. So anyway, that was a story that uh, caught my attention this morning. Uh, Anchorage is still counting the votes. Um, this is the part of the problem with the whole uh, mail-in thing. You just don't know on the day of. So things are coming in. Nearly all the votes, know, though, have been tallied. And uh, it looks like that uh, the three uh, most progressive incumbents in the uh, Anchorage Assembly, including Forrest Dunbar, Cameron Perez-Viridia and Meg Zalatel are all going to be returning to the assembly. They have safely won their seats and remain. Um, South Anchorage's John Weddleton, who is really more the moderate than anything else, last week conceded in his race to Randy Salt. And then Kevin Cross has won his race, uh, replacing Crystal Kennedy, who did not run for re-election. The good news, by the way, on this whole thing, <clears throat> even though now they... The, even with the incumbents, the the assembly's majority will still have enough votes to override Mayor Dave Bronson's uh, edicts or uh, plans. But it, the 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 silver lining of this whole thing is that two of the the two bond proposals that were put before the voters one was a fifty four million dollar bond package by the city, the other was a whopping one hundred and eleven million dollar bond package. From the school districts that was supposed to do school upgrades and deferred maintenance and all this kind of stuff, they're all failing. <clears throat> they're all failing. Um, in fact, uh, with a 51% voting no, uh, exactly. And here is the capper for me on this story. This is the this just cracks me up. Here's the comment from the uh, school districts. This is a statement that they put out yesterday. Our plan was for this bond to pass. Unfortunately, it appears that it will not. The district has started the process of researching next steps to address the important safety, restoration, and maintenance needs that Proposition 1 addressed. Part of the research is also to understand why it didn't pass. Part of the... Part of the... Okay, part of the research is to understand why it didn't pass. Might I ask that maybe you turn your head and look over your shoulder at the last two years? Might I might I suggest that you look back at the you know at the uh, the recession that we were just barely starting to come out of when COVID dropped the economic bomb on us, and then we spent the last two years struggling to get through all this. I mean, you know, the vast majority of businesses had a real struggle during the COVID. Right. I mean, some businesses, you know, they boomed, they succeeded. Good. Great for them. But many people, you know, lost income, lost their jobs, had to change jobs, did all this kind of stuff. And then you're like, we just don't know why this didn't pass when they, uh, you know, when they and we just it's only one hundred and eleven million dollars. And, you know, we're we're retiring that much debt from the why. So it's really a wash. Why would you do you know, why would you let, let me look and ex understand why this didn't pass? I mean, what a bubble these people must live in. What an absolute bubble these people have got to live in where they're just like, well, I just don't understand why it wouldn't pass. 
Uh, maybe people are finally starting to understand that these bonds are not free, right? We keep getting told this is free, free money, man. The state's going to reimburse us for a huge chunk of this and it'll be fine. And go ahead and indebt your houses and your properties and it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, meanwhile, they're sitting on millions and millions of dollars of COVID money that could potentially be redirected for some of these things if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to work with it. I mean, they're, they're, they're sitting on money. They're, they're, it's there, but you know, we just, we just don't understand why it didn't pass. I mean, we've only asked for a hundred million dollars in bonds every other year for, I mean, you know, and look, we, we didn't give you, this is the other thing. This is one of the previous stories was like, we didn't even give you a bond last year. It's like, you should feel lucky. We didn't put a bond in front of you last year. You get a city of 270,000 people with a budget that's over half a billion dollars, and you're like, I don't know why this didn't pass. <laughs> and I love how they took the jab at, well, we're going to research the next steps to address the important safety restoration and maintenance needs. Maybe you should have been thinking about that the whole time. Maybe you should have been planning and budgeting for that the whole time. Your maintenance needs, your safety needs, your restoration needs. This piss poor planning on your part does not, you know, does not create an emergency on my part. But that's how they act. Oh, we need these now for safety of the thing. Are you saying my kids aren't safe? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. But they, wait, don't you have money that you should? Well, yes, but this is a man. Wow. Woof. Uh and finally, I guess we're going to get to this budget stuff. we got Ben Carpenter coming up here, but I did want to play this. This was an excellent quote from Ben Carpenter, and we'll let him comment on this. But this is the same thing we were talking about just the other day, where the whole goal of the legislature is to get the permanent fund up to over $100 billion. Why? Why do they not want to take any – why do they not want to pay us? Why do they want to put this – you know, put more money back into the corpus and everything else? Because when they hit that $100 million mark, government will pay for itself. It will be self-sustaining, and they – they they just they they love that not to have the uncertainty and everything else, but really the question is what are we just doing with it? We're just funding more government. Ben Carpenter on the floor of the house. This is this is a classic right here. So if that's the direction we're headed, that we're going to spend all of our earnings from the permanent fund on state government, then what's the purpose of having a, a big permanent fund? It's to pay for state government and more of it. To the, to the extent that our state government could uh, theoretically grow to the size of the permanent fund. Whatever the earning size is, that's how much government we can have. And I'm, I'm not in agreement with that. So as I'm wrapping up my two minutes, I would just say that if the alternative is paying $6 billion out and getting it into the private sector, then that is preferable to a permanent fund that continuously grows and feeds an unfettered state government. And that pretty much sums up the whole problem right there. Representative Ben Carpenter on that right now, which leads us to the commercial break. Uh, that means we're going to uh, take a quick one and we will be back with more. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke show continues. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We will be back with more here in just a moment. Representative Dave Carpenter. Um, and we will be back 
right after these uh, messages. Don't go anywhere. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break right now. I'm going to, uh, they had a power outage down in Homer, and I'm going to disconnect and reconnect them because we had the power outage. And uh, we're going to try that right now. Look at that. All connected and reconnected and everything's good. All right. Um, uh, Where was that speech five to ten years ago, says Chris? Please forgive my goldfish memory. No, I mean, that was, uh, that's some good stuff right there. That is definitely some good stuff. So I'm happy to see that, uh, I'm happy to see that uh, 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 Ben Carpenter is you know on the same page with us here. We're gonna be we're gonna be uh, talking with him here in just a second. Um, all right, uh, Ben, Dave's not here, man. Um, oh, did I say Dave? It's probably because I was reading a text from Dave down in Homer uh, about the situation at the station. So we're all good. We're all good. All right. Uh, I believe Representative Ben Carpenter is on the line with us right now. Let's double check. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Good, good. I think that you just uh, hit the nail on the head. Um, and well, it's about uh, time. It's only taken me four years. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's something we've been talking about for a while here. But I mean, it is the uh, it is the uh, um, uh, you know the old adage, and I was just trying to adage. Uh, I was just trying to figure out what the uh, you know how you got Godwin's law, where every argument on the internet eventually devolves into Nazis. Uh, there's an old adage about government consuming all the available, you know, re- resources. Eventually, that no matter how much you expand, the government will just, ex- you know, government will expand to consume all the, uh, you, know, you know, all the uh, all the funds available. No matter how much you say, oh, we'll have a surplus. No, government just expands to take all that and more. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. whether you're whether you're a benevolent king or a uh, needy democracy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so hold the line for just a second, Ben. I'll be right back to you. We're going to uh, we'll jump into it with you here in just a second. Um, but yeah, that's the old. I can't remember what the uh, Parkinson's law is. That what it is? Thank you, Rob, for uh, um, uh, for for hitting us with that. Um, uh, it's the old adage that work expands to fill all the time allotted for its completion. So this is a derivative of Parkinson's law, essentially, basically saying that. You know that uh, all the all the, the 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 demand for the money and the resources will expand to match the supply of the resource. So that's that's how it works. Parkinson's law. Thank you for, so much for uh, for uh, hitting me with that. Um. All right. Uh, what else have we got here? It sometimes applies to the growth of bureaucracy in an organization, but it can be applied to all forms of work. Thank you. Thank you uh, for that, Rob. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, all right, let's take a look at whatever else you guys have been talking about here in the chat room. Uh, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, uh, the White House says Biden is at the top of the pol- totem pole. Okay. Um, 
Let's see, backroom deals, Krispy Kreme. Anchorage never learns. Anchorage will get what they voted for, says Michael Gabriel. Well, unfortunately, I just feel like sometimes people are just not, they're not, they're asleep. They don't know exactly what's going on. Michael says maybe people finally understand that bonds means tax equals tax. Uh, that schools just got a billion dollars from the House if it passes the Senate. Um, I mean, that's, you know, maybe because ASD has 90% of their COVID money unspent, says Angie. That's what I was talking about. They've got millions of dollars hanging out there in COVID funds. What are they doing with it? Um, and, uh, yeah. All right. So we're going to... Uh, we're going to uh, jump into this here in about 60 seconds, and we will go from uh, uh, we'll go from there. First rule in Ketchikan during the crisis is that the city borough takes control of all fuel, power generation, vehicles, etc. Says Jim. What? 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 All right, <clears throat> we got to go. Um, thanks for coming in. Hit the like button. Hit the share button. Like and follow. We're not on YouTube for the remainder of the week because we're still on our one-week ban for talking with David Kodria from last week. and But we should be back on Monday with YouTube. But we're still on Twitch. We're still on Facebook. Make sure you like and share. Let's get it done. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense. Liberty-based. Free thing and radio. Like and share, like and share, like and share. Let's do this thing. Here we go. Okay, so uh, we just played that bit from Ben Carpenter out on the floor of the house, which I thought was one of the many good pieces, many of the good discussions and talking points that came out of what happened. Uh, we've asked Ben Carpenter to come in and join us this morning to discuss everything that went down during the whole budget debate, to get a recap from him and where he thinks we are going from here. Ben Carpenter, our guest, GOP State Rep from District 29. Good morning, my friend. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Michael. I'm doing very well. Good, good. Thank you. Uh, what's your new district number? Do you know yet? <laughs> yeah, it's eight. It's eight. I just I get used that's, to. The, I, I have to get through the election in November. I know it's well. That's true. That's true. I just and, I, and then I have to decide whether I'm running or not. Well, see, that's, there you go. There you go. It's just one of those somebody, things. Somebody's going to fill out the seat for district district eight. District eight. There you go. That's the name. That's the new district. I just why can't they just keep them the same? It just so gets so confusing sometimes. I just get the new districts down at like year six or seven. And then, like, every 10 years, they switch them around again. So I, do, I don't even know what's going on. Um, all right. Um, well, let's um, let's dive into this. Uh, your comments. Let's start off with your comments that I just played a minute ago, which was, of course, your comment on the floor about how they're, the majority in the House and really the leadership in both bodies seems so hyper-focused on uh, building up the permanent fund, on putting more monies back in, on saving all the monies. I mean, they were – they were wild, drunken sailor spenders the last 12 years, you know, burning through, what, $16, $17 billion out of the CBR and more out of the SBR and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, they've become fiscally responsible, and now they're pouring all this money back into the permanent fund with the ultimate goal of trying to get the permanent fund itself to $100 billion. Uh, and But the question, I think, then becomes, 
why specifically? Why specifically are they trying to do that? And I think you you pretty much nailed it on the heads there. Parkinson's principle, thank you, Rob, in the chat room. Parkinson's principle basically says that, you know, that government will expand to fill up all the available, you know, resources and revenues and funds that are there. So however much revenue you've got, that's how far government will expand and it will just keep expanding. Is that kind of your point in in what you were saying on the floor? Give us your thoughts here. Yeah, it is. And, and I would argue that there were probably individuals a decade ago that said, huh, the permanent fund is a more reliable source of revenue than our oil wealth. Well, that's the reason we created the permanent fund in the first place, right? Because we right. acknowledged that the oil could run out one day. Right, exactly. So the, the, uh, the purpose of getting all of our CBR spending done in the last decade, like getting that balance down, was because we don't have it to rely on anymore, and now we can go into the permanent fund earnings. That's the, that was the whole whole so, point of having to spend all that money down. So, so your assertion is is that they didn't want the ten billion dollars in there because it was always a cushion, and now they can go over to and, and you know in a way I would agree with you partially because there's mechanisms in place on the CBR it required a higher vote threshold, and the earnings reserve requires just a simple just a simple majority. And so uh, you you may be right, but your assertion is that this is really a longer term play. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely not. Not for everybody, but I think there are a few people that this is what their longer term play has been for quite a while. So it's and, the future. It's the future of the sure. state of Alaska. As long as we have a permanent fund, it's going to continue growing. Sure. There'll be years that it it has problems, and stock market has years that it has problems. But over the measured in decades, the fund is going to continue to grow. And if we can get in early and say, hey, 25% of this is, uh, eh, we'll pay it to the people, but 75% of it is going to state government. Or 100% of this, state government's more important than anything else, and we need 100% of this, which is where I think that this is actually going well, yeah. as soon as it makes more sense to pay to state government than it does to pay a dividend. Well, I mean, it's incrementalism. We've seen that over the years. But, I mean, you know, looking back at it, I mean, and kind of through the uh, cynical, more of a cynical lens, I mean, you're right. If we empty out all of the savings accounts and we take away all of the, you know, the golden parachutes for the state or ways or back doors or, and we basically back the state into the corner where there are no more funds available in any of the various accounts to draw on, then eventually we're going to then eventually we're going to be faced with only having money available in the permanent fund and in the earnings reserve and as i just mentioned the earnings reserve is much easier to get into than the cbr so why not and and yeah well, 75 25 Michael, is just the start the earnings reserve the earnings reserve will not have money remaining in it they'll just they, they will just move the money from the earnings reserve into the corpus as we've done um, this budget will be an additional billion on top of the $8 billion over the last two years. So the intention is to get rid of the ERA eventually. That way there is no spendable money. So it just draws... That's, that's the intention. So they just draw it from the corpus. And I've said this for years, that the, that the overall goal is to get their hands on the corpus. And so starting with SB26 and the move of this POMV, this is what they're attempting to do. So they remove the CBR, they empty the CBR, they empty the SBR. Now they're going to eliminate the ERA. All money goes to government, and then they can look at you truthfully and say, well, there's just no more money. We have to have this money for government, and that's it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that the, the same people who want the permanent fund to fund government 
are going to want to raid the balance or the corpus of the permanent fund because then they don't have they have a uh, a lesser amount to fund state government. Right. But, you know, big big picture in theory, if you're creating a model for how to fund state government, having it come from a perpetual source of investment earnings is, I mean, why would you not do that? That's great. That's how we'd all like to do. Why don't? Isn't that why we invest? Right. Right. But right. the question is, is that what we want? Is that what we want? Is just a, a government that can grow to the size of the permanent fund? Right, because it continues to grow. As the fund grows, the government continues to grow, and it continues to expand. And there is no connection between the people and what the people want and what the people are receiving. There's there's no connection there, as Hammond talked about, with people having you know a, basically skin in the game at that point. You have to understand what goes on within the building down here. We have a constitutional responsibility and, and to pass a budget, right? We care about three pots of money, and we talked about this before. Federal dollars, permanent fund earnings, and oil revenue. And there's a very small amount of non-oil revenue, okay, uh, percentage-wise. That's what we care about as legislators is how to spend that money. We have policies over the last decades that have been um, favorable to uh, oil development. Do we have policies going forward that are favorable to our non-oil economy? I don't know if that's going to be the case if you've got a permanent fund that's funding your state government. We don't have to care about the the economic engine of the state because the government is already funded. <laughs> I mean, the more I look at this, the more insidious it seems. Um, and, and, of course... Here's here's my prediction, uh, Ben. Based on what you were just saying, if all that you know all that comes to pass, eventually what will happen is is government will continue to grow, and then we'll have a down year in the stock market. Right? We'll have a year like we had in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and where everything just basically you know dropped dropped down to nothing. And then what'll happen? Well, then they'll say, you know, we need you guys all to pay your fair share. And so then income taxes or some other kind of broad-based tax will come into play, and they'll take all the permanent fund earnings plus that, and government will just continue to grow. If you came up with a 25-75 agreement this year, then the first thing to go would be that 25%. Sure, right? it would be 100%. That, that dividend would be gone, and then you would have some other uh, must-not-fail must portion of the state government that you have to raise revenue to pay for. And, yeah, and that's... that's uh, Anyway, that's the way I see it. <laughs> I know there's plenty of other people that are like, hey, you know what? Give up the permanent earnings if I don't have a pay, pay a tax. But the problem, okay. and here's the problem with that argument, Ben. This is what I was just saying. You could say that. You could say, just give up the permanent fund earnings so I don't have to pay a tax. Let them have what they want, and that'll be fine. They'll leave us alone. The problem is they won't leave you alone. I mean, if history proves anything, is that not only through the Parkinson's law will they consume all the available resources – they will continue to grow to the point to where new resources, new revenues are required to keep the ball rolling, to keep that, to keep feeding the yeast to that ball. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's not you. It'll be your children or your grandchildren. Exactly. Exactly. But it is coming in the future. It will happen. Yeah, it will. You, you know, and, uh, and, and this is what the scary thing is for me. And we don't have enough conservative, fiscally conservative voices in the legislature to uh, to make that happen, I mean, how you know is do we need to just keep changing the players until we eventually get it, or are these old guard going to continue to hold everybody hostage? Well, uh, in the 
in the uh, form of government that we self-government that we have, those are your options. Right now, we have a second option in some form of a constitutional convention. But from year to year, uh, changing the players is the only thing we have. Right. So, yeah, (laughs) uh, so monumentally frustrating to watch this happen, Ben. I can't imagine what it's like to be in the middle of it. Um, Walk me through the uh, the legislative process of the of the budget here that you guys just went through. I mean, 80, what was it? 86 amendments or something you guys had proposed of which, what was it like? 88 eight? amendments and an untold, uh, uncounted amount of uh, amendments to the amendments. Right. I don't know how many those were. Right. And then what did you guys get? Like eight, eight amendments passed totally out of all of those. And I, no, I wasn't counting, but no, I think it was six or eight. Yeah. Like no real substantive change. We have, including the forward funding and everything else we're talking about uh, uh, you know 7 plus billion dollars in funding going forward for 2324 and um and and you know what what are, what are Alaskans going to be I mean how are we going to be benefiting out of this or over what we've got instead of putting that money directly back into the private economy where it can actually do some good minus all the you know the non-multiplicative effects of government spending well, the, sub, the only substantive thing that we did, we, we reduced the budget by 350 k to, to not fund abortion with state dollars. That would be, in my, my estimation, the only real monetary substantive thing that we were able to uh, remove from the budget. Um, you've got oil, ta- oil gas tax credits that didn't get paid last year. They're in the budget, total $60 million. That's an additional spend. You got a because of the high oil prices. You got uh, 349 million of current year statutory required uh, formula required um, payments to the oil and gas tax credit program. So those are things that that would actually benefit private industry uh, that we're able to spend from the from the budget. And I was in support of that um, because that's it. And just to clarify, because in the past the statutory amount has been. As you said, sixty, seventy, eighty million dollars. But because there's an escalator built into that formula, the statutory amount this year, because of high oil prices, is over three hundred million dollars in statutorily required payments this year alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you, we also are projecting that fiscal year twenty two, we've got a, a billion dollars in additional revenue because of the high oil prices. So, it makes sense to me that the statutory requirement to pay that. Uh, back is higher in the years that we have excess right so exactly that's that's why i'm why i'm supporting it right um but uh pretty much everything else i mean we've got this whole idea i, I guess here's one of my questions because somebody sent me a question they said look the forward funding issue is still being battled out in court what kind of insanity is it that they're going to go ahead and try and forward fund two more years at over a billion dollars a year when the current forward funding that they've been talking about is still being tied up in court, what kind of insanity is that? Was there any discussions on that component on the floor that, hey, this is still, you know, we st- this is still being tied up? I mean, why why are we proposing this when we don't even know if it's going to be legal? You know, I think there might have been a comment on that, but it's not a it wasn't a major point of contention. And and I think with the the contention with the forward funding concept goes is that if I, as the current legislature appropriate um, money from this year's budget, money that I actually have, and I appropriate it for a future year, it sits in an account, in an account, and it, it, it's uh, encumbered. It doesn't get spent on anything else. It's just 
in the accounting world, it's just to say this money is already obligated and it's for fiscal year 24. And that's, that's what we believe to be allowable. Right. If you say, I'm going to appropriate money that's going to come into the revenue, uh, into the coffers in fiscal year 24, and I'm appropriating that to the program in fiscal year 24, then you're, you're appropriating money that hasn't come in yet, and that would be a next legislature's uh, purview to spend that money that comes in. Now, the next legislature can always turn around and say, hey, that money that was forward-funded last year, it's sitting in an account and it's obligated, but we can obligate it to somewhere else. Right. Well, I it guess... doesn't have to get spent for what it was what it was originally um, appropriated for. Right. And I guess that's the discussion between dedicated and designated funds at this point. You know, designated for one thing, dedicated. I mean, even though the words are are you know almost interchangeable, they're they're living on this razor thin edge of uh, skirting the line or the idea of the of the law. Uh, versus the letter of the law. Yep, I get it. And in in my estimation, I want to have a conversation with the education lobby that says, let's stop talking about money for just one session. And let's talk about what we need to talk about, which is making some systemic improvements in our education system. So if you've got board funded of education, then I don't have to worry about you coming in and bringing in the, the tears and, and saying, we're going to have to you know, send out pink slips because we need a budget passed. Right. That's off the table. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Do you, so, th- do you wait, do you think that's really going to stop them from doing the political theater of issuing pink slips to everybody? Do you really think that that's going to, uh, to fix that problem? Well, I think the pink slips argument goes away. The, the lobby doesn't. <laughs> right. They'll find something to, to ask for more money for. Right? I'm, I'm sure of that. Uh, ben Carpenter is our guest, uh, representative, GOP State Rep District uh, 29. Uh, just realized we're running late. Sorry about that. Up against the break, we'll be back with more. The Michael Duke Show continues. You're home for common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. I get so into these conversations with Ben that I just totally lost track of the time. Um, uh, ben, so uh, you just... You just uh, uh, well, I, I don't know if I – you just teased the fact that you're still trying to decide. You haven't decided to rerun at this point. Is that the case? I, I'm uh, focused on what we're doing down here, and Good. I'm not going to uh, confuse myself or distract myself with <laughs> some sort of a campaign decision or having to – you know, once you make the decision, then you got to move. Right. So I'm, I'm going to, to hold off on that until after session. That's the wisest thing to do. Okay. All right. No, I, 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 I respect that. Um, uh, I totally understand that for sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, let, let, when we come back, we'll talk about some of the highs and low points of the, uh, of the debates on the budgets. But where, what, what do you do now? I mean, the budget's finished. The House is pretty much done. You're waiting now for the Senate to do their work. And then it has to come back to the conference committee. So walk me through what you know. Walk me through what's going on now, and what the next steps are for folks out there who don't understand the process. Walk us through yeah. the next steps. So the next step is for the the Senate to bring the House budget over, and they can either work on it or they can do their own budget. And then when they get done with their process, which looks similar to what the House did, going through subcommittees and through the Finance Committee, and then back to the floor of the Senate for a vote, and then their bill comes over to the House. And all of our members have an, um, an opportunity at that point to have a vote on it's a concurrence vote. So we can, we can accept the budget as the Senate sends to us. 
or we can decline to accept it. If we decline to accept it, then the two budget bills go to the conference committee and committee members are assigned by the presiding officers and those committee, that committee then hashes out what the budget's actually going to look like. And I would have guessed that the Senate is not in concurrence with the um, projection, projected revenue that, that the House used. So I imagine that their amount of money available for appropriation for their budget is going to be less than what the House chose to project as available funds for appropriation. So their budget's going to come in smaller than the House budget. So it'll be interesting to see what programs and what uh, what things that they remove from the House budget or, or are different from the House budget. Right. Well, I mean, but again, we see that some of the leadership, it appears, is uh, running in lockstep. Uh, the leadership in the House and the Senate, uh, the leadership on the finance committees, uh, they may disagree necessarily on the overall funding mechanism, but it seems that the philosophies, at least, are in alignment. Am I Am I off base on that, or does that appear to be the same from your perspective? Well, in relation to the permanent fund earnings, I would say they're probably in, a, in some sort of an agreement there, but not on what needs to be spent. I, I think that there's much more appetite within the majority in the House versus the majority in the Senate to increase spending. So I don't, I don't think they're in agreement in that. And the spending is increased. I mean, even taking out the $1.2 billion in forward funding, there's still a significant increase in the budget from from uh, 22 to 23, right? Um, not as significant. You got, uh, I guess, how do you define significant? The difference between the governor's request and our request is roughly, or our approved budget is roughly 10 12%. Right. It is more than the previous year's budget. Um, but well, not drastically. And, and especially if you take out the COVID money, right? I don't know that the, the state portion of it is drastically more. Right. I guess I would just look at anything. I figure if I got a 10% raise, that's a pretty significant raise. So if it's a 10% increase in a budget, I guess I would count that as significant. I mean, in my mind, anyway, overall. Yeah, uh, the the um, Governor Dunleavy's um, requested his, his budget that he sent to us was an increase over last year's budget. So, yeah, I mean, we're all... We're all looking for more. Is that? We're all looking for more. <laughs> we're all looking for more. Um, all right, Ben Carpenter is our guest. Uh, we're going to again hit the highs and the lows of the budget discussion uh, when we come back. Anything else you want to talk about, Ben? Here this morning, anything else we're missing or that we should be focusing on or thinking about here uh, when we well, come back? I, I think that philosophically, if you've got an excess in funds like a um, surplus, that you should pay your debts and save some of it. And then talk about what you're going to splurge on. <laughs> um, the the House has said that they're going to spend uh, or put uh, two billion dollars into savings into the SBR uh, at the end of this process. But that's before capital budget spending, and right. that's if there's anything left over. There's nothing that's been appropriated to savings. Right. Well, and again, I find it ironic that even though constitutionally they're mandated to hold. Uh, they're owed what ten billion dollars to the court to the uh, CBR, the Constitutional Budget Reserve. I find it ironic that they want to put it in the SBR again because of the different vote thresholds that are required to draw monies out. It makes it much harder for them to have access to it. So um, I'd love to see the argument of putting it in the SBR versus the CBR. Why they want to? Do, I mean, I know why they want to do it, but I would love to see that argument on the floor anyway. 
Um, yeah, uh, there's not much of an argument. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> we have we have easier access to the money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, we'll hold the line. Ben Carpenter, our guest. The Michael Duke Show continues. Common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Here we go. All right, continuing now, Representative Ben Carpenter is our guest, uh, GOP State Rep, District 29, um, here in the final segment of this hour. I wanted to uh, I wanted to get from Ben here kind of the highs and the lows, the highlights and the, and the lowlights of what happened during the uh, legislative session here on the budget, uh, some of the points, uh, the high points, and then, again, some of the, the low. I mean, there was a lot of discussion. We saw the permanent fund, an attempt of, what, three or four different times uh, between the amendments and the amendments to the amendments to try and get a full statutory or at least a 50-50 PFD put forward. And yet you guys were shot to ribbons every time, it seemed like. So hit us with, you know, whatever you want to start with, highs or lows, hit hit us with what you want to talk about here. Yeah, so uh, I would say that there was about two dozen amendments and amendments to amendments to address the the permit fund dividend issue. There was plenty of opportunity for us to uh, make a decision, make a policy call that the permanent fund earnings should be um, uh, divided out to the public per the statute, or in absence of wanting to follow the law, uh, recognize that the um, the high energy prices and the high uh, gas, gas at the pump and heating oil and um, inflation and all that is hitting our public just as much as it's hitting our government, and thus a larger distribution from permanent fund earnings. Um, if you're not going to follow the law, then at least morally, uh, right. it, it makes sense, right? So you've got a dividend that's $1,300, it's $840 million, and that's being paid from the dividend fund. And then you've got a $1,300 energy relief payment that's not a dividend, but it's paid from the dividend fund. It's also eight hundred and forty million dollars. <laughs> so right. you do the math. Right. That's that's what you would consider a fifty-fifty split of the permanent fund earnings. So, but they, but they wanted to make hand, it, they wanted to make it very clear, Ben. This was not a dividend. We need to make this crystal clear that this is not a dividend. This is an energy yeah. relief. Don't think that. The, don't think in any way that this has anything to do with the permanent fund dividend. Yeah. So this is the the shell game, right? It's we're gonna we're gonna call it a a dividend and be able to say, yes, we paid a 25-75 split, but then we want credit for giving people money, so we'll call it something different and give them the amount that would be a 50-50 split. Right, exactly. And draw it from somewhere else to make sure that there's no, just there's no mistaking the fact that this is, that this is not a, this is a, this is, don't even think that it's a dividend in no, any way. No, that's the, that's the irony. They're not even attempting to do that. Both payments are coming from the dividend fund. Oh, so they are coming from the earnings reserve. Okay, okay, because I thought it was coming from another... The the structure with the POMV took money out of the earnings reserve and put it into the general fund. So So, all of the $3.3 billion that is the POMV, the 5% of market value draw, is in in the general fund. And then they took the $840 million dividend payment and put it into the dividend fund so you can pay dividends with it. And then they took $840 million out of the general fund and put it into the dividend fund to pay energy relief payments. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got it. All right. 
So we're paying you the dividend without calling it a dividend. Don't you ever expect us to do this again? And uh, that way, nobody gets a win. We still get our seventy-five twenty-five. The governor gets his money. He can't really gripe about it. And so there we go. Yep. Yep. So then we're we're adding another fifty-seven million above the BSA, and that's going to happen. It's either going to happen in the the bill that's before finance, or just passed out of finance, or it's going to happen in the uh, in the budget. So the way that it's structured, it's either way. If the budget, or the, sorry, the, uh, the appropriation, yeah, the, the bill that addresses the increase in the BSA doesn't pass, then the, the budget amount passes. Right. Um, there's 79 million for state aid for uh, school construction. There's a 17 million appropriation from the general funds to the rural education attendance area, the REAA and small school district fund. Uh, so we've got some issues with uh, statehood defense. The, the governor has said that um, there's a lot of lawsuits that need to happen, that are happening and, and need to happen. And he'd asked for some additional money, uh, $4 million in, on top of the $4 million that we already gave him. And um, the majority decided to cut that in half. So we're only sending two additional million dollars to, um, and that'll probably get us through to next year. Right, right. We can have a conversation then about that again. Well, I guess I, uh, I I wanted to go back real quick to this contingency language uh, because this seems to be a fairly new thing. This started happening a couple of years ago. Uh, Bert Stedman was, I think, one of the architects of that originally, where it basically said the law, the, the the new this bill says that we will pay this or this or we'll pay a higher amount based on the contingency that this other bill passes. I mean, at some point, do you have to go? I mean, wow! I mean, how can how can that even be you know legal to do that kind of contingency thing? It's almost like a a, a way of blackmail at some point. Uh, it's definitely a um, I don't know a technique to hedge your bets, right? You're, right. You don't want to call it twisting arms because that that means somebody has nefarious um, intentions here. But um, yeah, I mean. It just it just makes things more complicated. It would um, you know the layperson, most Alaskans would just be say, hey, can't you just put forward a straightforward budget, something that the layperson can understand? <laughs> right. Why, why can't we do that? Well, yeah. Because it doesn't benefit them. Because it doesn't yeah. benefit them to do that. If the average person could understand what was going on, then anybody could do this, and they become less special. I mean, yeah. they've got to do it to kind of hide and shield. It's a shell game. I mean, it's, you know, voodoo accounting is what I like to call it. <laughs> so another thing that's in this budget that's an increase that is, um, that I, I'm, I have reservations about, but I'm supporting is uh, five, almost $6 million for 404 and RICRA primacy. And that should help our, um, our process for developing uh, our natural resources. Uh, it, it allows the state to control what the federal government currently controls in, in regards to permitting processes on state lands. The federal government would still retain their authority over federal lands and um, portions of the navigable waterways. But on state property, uh, we would we would then have primacy. So that adds some, some positions to DEC and it adds some money to the budget. But what it should do is decrease the time that um, companies have to spend um, and their resources, uh, labor, to go through a permitting process. Yeah. So that should be helpful um, to our industry. Uh, final minute here, uh, Ben. Uh, any final thoughts here? I mean, you think the governor's going to veto? Do you have any predictions? Quickly. Uh, 
I don't at this time. I I think that if uh, I think that our budget comes out of the Senate smaller, and I think the governor will. Um, I think he will be inclined. I'm, I'm just spitballing here, but I'm, I think he's inclined to keep it more close to what he asked for than especially the what the, the House has asked for. So okay. that would be my guess. I, I don't know. I don't have any insider information. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for giving us uh, your insight on everything. Thank you for standing up on the floor and saying those things. I appreciate that. It'd be nice to see the Fiscal Policy Working Group plan be put forward next year. We'll have to see what happens at the polls, though. Thank you for coming on board, my friend. You're welcome. All right, hold the line for a quick second. Folks, we're out of time. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free thing and radio. So, historically, this is where we give our guest one final bite at the apple. In case there was something that I missed or uh, something that they wanted to talk about that I wasn't aware of. So, Ben, I, you got the floor here for the next three minutes or so here. Uh, just any final thoughts as you uh, as we get ready to sign off with you? Yeah, I, I guess I, what I would say to folks is that I've, if I'm looking at systemic uh, addressing s- systemic issues like a structural imbalance that we have, the fiscal policy working group, those are those are very heavy lifts, and they're longer term, bigger picture concepts. I see this year's budget as um, it's kind of low threat and an opportunity to set us up for a conversation next year. And that's kind of where how I've taken an approach this year is to say I'm hoping that things turn out good for us in the in the elections and that we have a few more people to be able to make some of these uh, systemic changes that we need agreement on. And what can we do through this budget process to help us with that conversation next year? That is kind of how I've approached this personally. Um, I don't have any, you know, personal control over the size of the budget because I'm in the minority, but to the the extent that I can influence and set us up for success, you know, in some small way for that conversation that has to happen, we have to happen. I mean, and the the crazy thing is, is that if if we're talking about um, budget shortfalls, the time that you want to address that is when you have surplus, not when you don't have any money. <laughs> so this is the exact time that we need to be having that conversation about what we do systemically to to set ourselves on a, a better path. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, how different do you think this would have been, Ben, if, um, if the Republicans had held the majority in the House? What kind of difference do you think that would have made? I mean, I know it's all hypothetical and everything, but... Just based on conversations with the minority now and 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 the leadership and all that, if you know we could wave a magic wand and go back two years and and switch it back to a Republican-led majority in the House, what do you think would be different? Well, I think we would have a much better shot at a, um, a spending limit, and and I think there are willing parties on the other side who want to have a conversation about the fiscal policy working group. And I know there are um, more members than not in our own caucus that want to have a conversation about that. But the the power structure that exists currently does not. So I I suspect that if if the if the Republicans were in power, this legislature, we would have and would be having a conversation about um, the systemic issues. I, I just I have a sneaking suspicion that that's the case. We would still be fairly evenly divided. Right. So, um, it's, it would still be a difficult conversation to have, but the power structure, I think, that would have been in place would have 
allowed the conversation. And so uh, do we still hold to the charter of changes? Do we still hold to the idea that the number one thing that should happen is a continual changing of the players until we get the right makeup to make those decisions? I mean, should that still be our top priority as citizens and listeners to uh, to try and adapt that? And, and, well, and I get... think the, the voters have got to be a little bit more savvy than just R&D. Right. Right? Because... Because what you're really looking for is is individuals who are not tied to business interests that rely upon state or federal spending. Because that's really where the dividing line is. That's both sides of the aisle, DNRs, have lobbies and, and special interests that are relying upon state spending and federal spending. And that's kind of where where the where the crux of the problem is. Is that it, it's it, the party system, the the labels that we put on right. each other, kind of mask where the power structure, where the power lies with with those individuals. Would it be? So more- you really need to know: is this person going to support uh, the the lobby, the the status quo, the continued um, spending of state money to those I- interests that exist now, or are we going to make some difficult decisions? That's that's really the, the crux of the problem. So would it be more accurate to say that this is really not an R versus D situation, but more of a pro-government spend versus a pro-private sector spend kind of situation? Would those be, those be more appropriate labels? Yeah, I'm going to use that, Michael. <laughs> that's a much better way to say it. That, that's, that's what it is. You, you've got to understand whether your representative is a pro-government spend or pro-private sector. Yeah. No, and I agree with you that I think that uh, I, I agree with you that I think that the that the problem is is that we've got a lot of businesses that have become dependent. Their business model is wrapped up completely in the dependency of that government spend, and so that's why you saw things like I mean, back in the day, this is why during SB twenty six discussion you saw big companies like GCI and everything else pour millions of dollars into campaigning supporting these bills because they have created an entire business model of dependency around the government spending. It is. Uh, we're we're you're we're talking about the problem that exists within our state and yeah. our country. Absolutely, absolutely. Crony right. crony capitalism is what we like to call it around here, and we need to uh, we need to be paying close attention to it. And so you're right. The R versus D does not really matter. It is are they a pro government spend or are they a pro private sector spend? Uh, that's really should be the question you ask your your, uh, yeah, your elected officials. The reality is, if we're having conversations about twenty four hundred dollar dividends, if that's what the conversation is, we're not talking about twenty four hundred dollar or more paychecks. Right. And what we really want is larger paychecks in the in the economy. I want to work. I want to go to work, and I want a larger paycheck. I want uh, a future for my kids where they they earn a paycheck. I want growth in my economy. I want the wealth in the private sector, the GDP of the state to grow. Is that what we're talking about, or are we just spending the finite resource we have this year without any consideration to growing the economy? Ben Carpenter, take it and run with it, my friend, Uh, and with my blessing. Thank you for coming on board this morning. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Michael. All right, folks, uh, out of time for this segment uh, and this hour. Hour two is dead ahead. The Michael Luke Show continues. We're going to open up the phone lines and take some calls from you as well. We appreciate uh, Ben Carpenter being part of the program today. Back with more. Here we go. Hour two right now.
Buddy, put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. That's right, around the world on the interwebs at MichaelDukesShow.com, where the live stream lives. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitch and usually YouTube, although we're still experiencing our one-week ban from YouTube for having David Codry on the program last Friday. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe we'll be back on YouTube next week. We might be somewhere else as well. We don't know. We'll, we'll see where it goes. Thanks for coming back uh, onto the program. We appreciate you being part of it today. Uh, the Michael Duke Show just finished up with Representative Ben Carpenter, an enlightening discussion. And in fact, the discussion during the commercial break even had some more good stuff in it. Uh, basically, talking about part of the main problem here is is that you know when we comes when it comes to the charter of changes, and we talk about changing out the players, that being the number one issue on the charter of changes, right? I mean, that's the <clears throat> just for the reminder. The charter of changes are changing the players, changing the venue, changing the rules, and change the funding. Those are the four points of the charter of changes. And I was asking Ben specifically, so does the charter of changes still apply? Does that does that 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 first one, the changing the players, does it still apply? And his comment was, well, except for that we're getting caught up in this whole, you know, Democrat versus Republican, R versus D labeling problem, because there are R's out there who don't want a permanent fund. Because they have special interests that they're catering to. This is I'm paraphrasing kind of what his what he said, um, and so they want to support the the larger government spend because there are corporations and businesses out there that are Alaskan industries that are completely dependent on that government spend. And so my question was, well, then should we be looking at candidates through the lens and through the through the scope of are they pro government spend or are they pro private sector spend? And he said that was a much more accurate uh, 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 take on it. And I, and I think that's part of the problem. I mean, we have suffered from from uh, corporate cronyism in this country. Uh, well, John J. Hill, that was really the first major instance of corporate cronyism with the railroads. Uh, and we've suffered from that ever since. Government picking winners and losers. Government expenditures uh, and businesses creating a business model that is completely dependent on those kind of expenditures. Therefore, they continue to support and defend that instead of allowing the free market to uh, to, uh, to to go forward. It's government instead picking winners and losers instead of the market. And that is a huge part of the problem right there. Uh, so we just finished up talking about that with Ben Carpenter. and uh, But we're going to open up the phone lines for this hour. And we're going to see what you guys have to say on this. I mean, what are your thoughts on the direction that the government is going we knew going into this, and I know many people in the chat room, I saw several comments about how people were tired of the talk about, quote-unquote, next year. Oh, I'm so tired of next this this whole 
sick of the next year line. Well, but we knew that going in. We knew that the makeup of the legislature, um, we knew that the makeup of the of the people and the players who were already on the field was going to make it nearly impossible for any substantive change to happen this year. We knew that. I mean, we were, you know, we were we were warned about that from from everybody from you know Mike Shower, Shelley Hughes, all the conservative members, you know, said, "Look, this is you know this is an uphill battle for sure." But this year is even a more uphill battle. It's going to require those changes, the the playing, you know, the changing of the players, because if those players remain. Then you know, it, it, then the insanity continues. You know, because again, the repetitive—if uh, you keep doing what you're doing all the time and expecting different results—it's the definition of insanity. And that's where we're at. You know, we've got some set players in in the field right now that are doing the same thing over and over and over. And we continue to buy the lie. We continue to buy into the idea of uh, this is, you know, again, this is the this is the Peter Machicki syndrome, right? Peter did this the victory selfie lap back in 2014, 2015 when they passed SB 26, the POMV bill. Uh, remember, they that they they uh, they they took that selfie amongst themselves, and it was. Uh, Liesl McGuire and Peter Machicki and uh, I think it was Kathy Giesel and uh, Mia Costello. And they took this, oh, look at all the hard work we did. And we finally got it passed. And I, I called it, I, I ran with that picture for a while because it was the victory lap selfie that they did. Look at how great we are. But people weren't happy with it. And then people weren't happy with some other things that Machicki did. And he nearly lost his race to Ron Gillum, a, an, an absolute absolute outsider and an unknown because of his position on the PFD. And so Peter had a come to Jesus meeting. He, he had a, he had a revelatory moment and then he came down and met with everybody and, and, and Clem Tillian and the whole crew. I was there down in Homer when this happened and he assured everybody that, no, no, I'm back on, I'm back on team PFD. Now I'm back on team PFD. I'm back on team full PFD. And he signed the pledge. He signed, you know, he put his name to it. He said he was going to do it, and he got reelected once more. And yet, at every opportunity, it seems like when there's been an opportunity for the PFD, like for like when he was the tie-breaking vote for a full PFD, he voted no. He he could have voted yes, and his argument was, well, I just didn't want people to, I didn't want to raise expectations. Look, Jack, your job is not to manage expectations. Your job is to do what you said you were going to do. You said you were going to vote for it. And even if it failed, you could at least point to it and said, look, I vote for it. I voted for it. But instead, you voted. In fact, you were the you were the breaking vote. And then you voted for the 50-50, even though this is a whole thing. I mean, and again, justifying. I mean, at some point, you got to go, how many times do you folks have – I mean, to use Mike Shower's analogy, how many times does Lucy have to yank the football out from in front of you when you just say, no, no, not going to do it again? How many times do you have to send the same people back who said, oh, no, no, I learned my lesson. I will do, I will walk the straight and narrow. And then they wander immediately off to the path later on. Peter Machicki again running the Senate. Oh no no the Senate <clears throat> the House Finance is not going to excuse me the Senate Finance is not going to run amok. They're going to they're going to exercise the will of the Senate. They're not going to have their own really. So everything that's going on in the Senate right now 
everything that's going on in Senate finance is all just exercising, just just executing the will of the Senate majority, right? No? What's going on? So we're going to have to start removing some of these people. And we've changed out a good chunk of the legislature, 30, whatever it is. Uh, Rob, Rob is in the chat room, probably can sound off on this. 38%, 36% of the legislature's been changed in just the last handful of years. And it's not enough. It's still not enough. Because we keep sending the Bart LeBons and the Steve Thompsons and the Click Bishops from the interior. We keep sending the Louise Stutes and the Gary Stevens from Kodiak. We keep sending Bert Stedman back from Sitka over and over and over again. And that's what I, I mean, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. How do we change those people's hearts and minds? How do we reach into the Fairbanks area and find somebody who's, uh, you know, who's a little more strident in their views. How do we go down to Kodiak and convince people not to send, <clears throat> not to send, um, uh, uh, you know, Stutes back, not to send Stevens back. How do we, I mean, how do we go to sit? Bert Stedman is the prime. I mean, he is the prime instigator of all this stuff that's been going on over the last couple of years, whether it was taking away the road safety improvement features for Connect Goose Bay road and tying that to the vote to say, if you vote for this, if you don't vote for this, I'll take away all the funding to, uh, you know, all the chicanery that's going on with the with the Senate finance meetings and the permanent funds and everything else. How do you convince people in his neighborhood that he's not the guy to send back? That really becomes the bigger question. So these are all the questions. These are all the things that I want to talk about. These are all the things that I want to uh, discuss with you and uh, find out what's going on. Phone number to call on the Pivotel call-in line is 433-3150-433-3150. If you want to sound off this morning, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And I'd especially love to hear from people in Fairbanks and Kodiak, specifically on their, I mean, first of all, I broadcast in both of those areas. We don't broadcast to Sitka, so nobody in Sitka is listening to this and listening to me beat up on their on their senator. But I wish they were. I wish they were hearing this. But I'd love to hear from people on Kodiak um, uh, and, and from Fairbanks, especially in Kodiak where they're sending these two folks back over and over and over again. Why? Is it simply because they have an R next to their name? Have you not watched what they've done? Or is it just convenient? Is it just because they're friendly to the fisheries industry and that's a one-issue thing enough that's enough for you? I'd like to hear from you. 433-3150. Let's, uh, let's continue ahead here on the phones. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Randy in Fairbanks. Good morning, Randy. What's on your mind? I was kind of reviewing a, a video a VCR tape that I had of the show from April 7th. And I was heartened to hear uh, Representative Kevin McCabe on that day. That was April 7th, Thursday. And um, he mentioned about how he had put forth, as I understood it, you know what he said, put forth a $400 million amendment to the budget that he said he, he knew it wasn't going to pass, but he was kind of hoping. He said that, uh, that we need to finish up some of these some projects around here. And one of the things he was talking about was the rail spur, and I assume that the rail spur he was talking about was from 
Point McKenzie area, you know, Port McKenzie area, and the Beluga oil uh, gas fields or something down there, uh, on up to tie into the toward Wasilla to tie into the rest of the rail. That's what I'm assuming. Maybe you can correct me or tell me. And uh, he was concerned. He voiced concern about the super extravagant, hellacious uh, price of fuel oil up here in Fairbanks and how that would give us cheaper gas. You know, rail it up instead of trucking it up. And uh, I was really appreciative of that because we in Fairbanks are being hit hard by this horrific increase in the price of fuel. Well, he even mentioned that he had heard maybe it could go up to $9 a gallon, which would be unthinkable. You know, just about drive a person out of, you know, same thing that drove you out of town, I guess, you know, the price of heating and everything when you went down there. And uh, uh, so I appreciate uh, Representative Kevin McCabe on that. And um, uh, do you have some thoughts of what's going on with the – that sounds like more of a capital project thing than a uh, operating budget. Do you have any – any uh, news on what's happening to the rail spur and if we can benefit? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't have anything <clears throat> on the rail spur. I mean, Fairbanks could benefit because it could be a direct, uh, it could be another direct line right out there uh, from Point Mac up to uh, up to the interior without a lot of the problems that are facing the Port of Anchorage um, and some of the issues that they have there. A rail spur into that area would uh, could benefit, uh, you know, greatly. And as you said, even offer the fact that we could get, you know, oil or, or excuse me, natural gas even trucked or uh, trained up to Fairbanks for a much cheaper amount. I am not familiar with what's going on with that. I know there's been a discussion on that Point McKenzie extension for a while, um, but uh, no monies that I've seen have been discussed so far, uh, except for, I guess, the last number I saw showed that, you know, any rail kind of system that had to be laid down is looking to cost something like $2 million a mile. So however long the extension is, it's going to be a pretty hefty project by the time it's all said and done. Yeah, well, when when the uh, 2022 PFD comes around, I might have to, I haven't decided, you know, I applied for it. I'm not sure what I'll do, depends. But I might have to just send it back and say, please donate this to a rail spur. We need cheap, cheaper fuel here in Fairbanks. We're dying up here. So I mean, I mean, we we got natural gas, and it is cheaper than the fuel oil, but the royal would really make it even more cheaper. Well, so uh, my question is, uh, since you've applied for the PFD, you're going to receive both a PFD check and an energy relief check because of those high energy prices. Are you planning on keeping the energy relief? Well, I'm I'm kind of leaning toward donating it back to get energy relief with that would come from a rail spur <laughs> that would service longer in the long term than me just pocketing that money and maybe dashing off to Seattle with it or something. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you sounding off on that. Thank you, Randy, for being part of it. Uh, Angie in the chat room said, Rep McCabe is still working on that project, the Point McKenzie project for the rail. It's in CAPSIS, which is the capital the the capital project, and it's the budget. It's the, it's the projects that are in there. The full project from Point McKenzie to Fairbanks is – Three hundred and ninety-three million dollars. Three hundred and ninety-three million dollars. It's uh, definitely not a cheap thing. And you're right, gas prices as they continue to go up are going to be more and more painful. I mean, even in the vehicle I drive, which gets thirty-six miles to the gallon, uh, I'm still I'm still having to spend. You know, uh, I'm filling up almost every week, and it still costs me. You know. Over four hundred, almost five hundred dollars a month for fuel. If 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 it goes from the five dollar a gallon mark now to eight dollars a gallon, 
how much is that going to affect everybody? You know, not just me, but everybody. That's uh, that's that's pretty tough overall. Thank you, Randy, for your call. We got another line on hold, but we're up against the break, so we're going to talk to you during the break and get your name. And uh, we welcome any callers again this morning from Fairbanks or from Kodiak who want to sound off and talk about the problem children amongst us all or the Anchorage area, I guess, because we should talk about people like Josh Revac and Natasha Von Imhoff. Again, these are people who are in our camp, who are ostensibly on your team, right? Because this is a conservative show. You think the Republicans and so the R's, but... And they say, why do you keep talking about, why don't you keep talking about the Democrat? Well, because we should clean up our own house first, right? There you go. Back with more of the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free thinking radio. We're broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break now. Uh, Let's go over to the phones and figure out who's on the line so that we can start with them uh, as soon as we return to the radio. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Good morning, Michael. It's Kevin McCabe. How are you? Well, hello, my friend. How are you doing? Well, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Good, good. Well, hold the line. I would like to talk to you about this rail project and everything else. So we'll start off with you and have a and have a, a good, uh, a fun, good, substantive discussion. Is that all? Is that oxymoronic? I'm not sure. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll talk with you about that here in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Kevin McCabe going to be joining uh, joining up with us here just to say. <laughs> Deshana said, "I knew it. I knew you knew it was going to be Kevin McCabe. You are you are that that good. Awesome, awesome. All right. Uh, okay. So we're going to talk with Kevin here in just a hot second, and we will." Uh, We'll uh, have that discussion here in a minute, so don't go anywhere. Uh, please do me a favor. Uh, like and share our videos. Like and share our videos and uh, like and follow the show page as well if you want to be part of it. Uh, we'd love to We'd love to hear from you. Um, and uh, go ahead and drop me an email if you'd like as well. Me at MichaelDukeShow.com. M-E at MichaelDukeShow.com. There was a hitch in the universe the moment John Coghill joined Walker. I was watching it, and I sucked here. <laughs> I mean, this is the same guy that's been against the PFD. He was part of the raid on the PFD in 99. Uh, he has fought tooth and nail since any time. You know, whenever he was in the legislature, he fought tooth and nail against paying a full PFD. And now he is also supporting the anti-Con-Con movement and, uh, and again, supporting Bill Walker. So, yeah, pretty much... You know exactly where he stands at this moment. More, bigger, badder government. That's what it's all about. Um, didn't the Point Mac Railway spend like $200 million already and it's just sitting there for like six years now incomplete? Joseph, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, we'll see if Kevin's got more details on that when we come back, uh, when we come back to it. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it'd be a surprise. Uh, I'm surprised Lisa hasn't jumped on that transfer project. Is there a plan for all this money she supposedly got us? I mean, I'm yeah, exactly. 
I mean, after they did the big fanboy moment there where everybody got a chance to go in and gaze in awe at her for helping to get it and then to go beg hat in hand to Uncle Sugar for more money, I'm surprised that's not a that's not a uh, you know a, a a big deal. Jim says I was a huge fan of the rail bridge over the Tanana in Salcha, beginning to think I was bamboozled. Mm, that'd never happen. Never happen. Um, uh, let's see. I consider twenty six hundred dollar payment for proposals. Different details. Uh, Kingley says. So, what are the chances of this twenty six hundred dollar per? I think it's still a pretty good chance you're going to get it. The question is, is it going to be a thirteen fifty dividend plus a thirteen hundred dollar energy relief check, or is it going to be just the full twenty six hundred as a dividend? I don't know, but I think it's a pretty good chance you're going to get that payment one way or the other twenty six hundred, how whatever they call it in the long run. Um, but we'll have to see. Uh, I never count on getting anything more than a thousand dollars anyway, so. You know, there you go. That's that's what it's all about. Um, read this on a reliable site. Yeah, Musk has offered $42 billion to buy all of Twitter. Yes, that is that is true, Gail. That is true. That's been, uh, that's been on the news wire since last night. Um, okay, bamboozled by the government? Say it ain't so. It would never happen, right? Never, ever happen. Um. Mandatory for all legislators. Get yourself on the Michael Duke show. Sign the pledge. I don't know which pledge that is, but yes, get all legislators on the show. I mean, I reach out to legislators all the time, and I I still get put off by legis. I don't know if they're just afraid of me or what. I mean, I I don't bite. I mean, I may ask good questions and hard questions, but I don't bite. I mean, I'm not mean. I don't yell and scream at them. I don't understand why some of these folks just don't want to come on. I don't I don't understand that. All right, Kevin McCabe is on the line. Uh, we have another caller on hold as well, but Kevin McCabe is up first, so we're going to be with him for a bit. Uh, and so we will kick things off here right now. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Share the show, like this video, let's do it. All right, welcome back to the program. Continuing on now, uh, we have uh, open line, open forum. Uh, and sometimes this happens where we do an open line, open forum, and we get a legislator who drops in on us to talk about some of the things. Maybe he's been listening and hearing some of the questions. Representative Kevin McCabe is uh, on the program this morning uh, on the Pivotel call-in lines. Good morning, my friend. How are you? Good morning, Michael. How are you? Good, good, good. Uh, we were just talking. I don't know if your ears your ears were burning or not, but we were just talking about the potential capital projects and some of the things. And Randy was giving you praise for uh, uh, for talking about the uh, McKenzie Point McKenzie extension and everything else. So um, you want to give us an update on what's going on and what we're going to be doing? Sure. Well, a little bit of history first. Um, Absolutely, this was a state and borough project. The borough let a geo bond of $30 million, and the state put in $157 million. And they have finished the seven or the 32 miles of the rail spur bed from Port Mac to Houston, all but seven miles. They need to do seven more miles of bed. They apparently didn't have the right-of-way for a while. Now they do. So they need to finish that bed and then lay rails to Houston, 
And that part of the project is to finish that is another $190 million. The problem was uh, three years ago when I was running, it was $125 million. Last year it was $140 million. Now it's $190 million. So this is a classic example of why we should finish our, you know, what we start, finish our projects. The, uh, the state ran out of money, which is why it didn't get funded. It was one of the funds that was removed, I think, yeah, six years ago or seven years ago. And um, so, I, yes, I attempted to get that done. There's some more rail spurs and then the uh, natural gas project for the interior gas utility, which is the Titan plant. They need a spur, and um, it was all specifically designed for several reasons, but most of all is the port itself is useless without the without the rail spur. I, I won't say useless, but it's not as useful as if we had the rail spur going right. there. So you want to, to haul, me, that's key to finishing the port. Right. You want to haul all that freight down all 30 miles of Canick Goose Bay Road, the most dangerous road in the world. That sounds like a good idea. Let's put some more big trucks on there. Um, you're right. Uh, <laughs> but do, do the math for me here. $200 million got the spur all the way from the point, or I guess the bed and stuff, all the way from the point to within seven miles of Houston, and then it's going to cost another $190 million for those last seven miles? Um, what? I mean, Right, crazy, isn't it? Uh, what's, what's, what's going yeah. on in there? Well, it's, you know, it's inflation. I have no idea um, why the cost goes up as fast as it did. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the things that I asked uh, the CEO of the railroad, and he was – you know, he's like, you know, cost of steel, the cost of labor, if we can find the labor, um, all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I'm kind of in agreement. I know you can lay rail across tundra if you need to. Uh, I'm just not real sure if we're building the Cadillac of Cadillacs of rail bed or if, um, you know, why the cost is so high. And um, <laughs> certainly would be something. The 190 is the top end. That's what he told me. Right. That's the very max it will ever take and if uh, if it doesn't take that much then what it doesn't take will lapse back to the state well so, I, I guess that kind of blows my I whole to, i guess that blows my whole uh, previous uh when i was told that it cost about two million dollars a mile for a rail bed or for you know for putting in a railroad uh, uh uh track or whatever i mean that kind of blows that all to hell seven miles for 190 million dollars the price obviously apparently inflation is really hitting us everywhere Right, and uh, I think uh, if you watch the floor session, um, Mike Kronk also put in a a um, amendment to finish that up up around the bridge up over Salsha that somebody mentioned earlier. I think right, and uh, that was one point six billion, and he was like, uh, or one point two billion. I'm sorry, he stood up and he said, "Well, you know, in deference to the." representative from district eight hold my beer yeah <laughs> here's, exactly. here's 1.2 2 billion but yeah but here's the here's the deal is we have got to start building out the infrastructure of the state of alaska whether it be to, to handle ambler road mining materials uh west of sitna um you know we just if you think of it uh, here's my my standard spiel about uh, port mckenzie you know the the Port of Anchorage needs a bunch of money because they, the Port of Alaska, I'm sorry, needs a bunch of money because they are, uh, they have uh, resiliency problems with earthquakes. They have some a bunch of pilings that are bad and all that sort of stuff. So to me, it demonstrates what the military, the Navy SEALs say is two is one and one is none. So if we don't have a backup port for the Port of Anchorage, Alaska, 
which handles 90% of our food, uh, and we have some sort of an earthquake that creates an issue over there on their 200 acres, we're, we're going to have a problem, especially those of us on the other side of the Kinnick uh, Arm and the Kinnick River. You know, we're just going to have a problem at least until we can get bridges rebuilt or the port rebuilt and that sort of thing. So one of my ideas is to be able to uh, have a, a, a second port over there, and this is a deep water port. It doesn't need to be dredged every year like the Port of Alaska. And, uh, you know, if we finish that out, then we can service the 200,000 people that live on the other side of the Kinnick Arm. Right. Well, redundancy is key in those kind of situations. And you're right. Two is one, one is none. Right. And uh, we definitely need that. And, you know, it would be, again, it makes the port kind of useless to not be able to move the freight out of the port in an expeditious and efficient manner. And it doesn't, you know, there's no way that that road is going to take any more traffic um, than uh, than it already right. has right now. Even once they expand it, you're still not going to be able to run big rigs down there fully loaded with stuff. And so, I mean... We've 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 invested all this money. We've spent all this money on these things. Why oh why can't we get them? You know why oh why can't we just get them finished? Well, that was my question to the the railroad CEO was you know why is the railroad half finished so many projects? Uh, they were in looking for a bonding authority for the sewer dock to fix the sewer dock, and I'm I'm like well why don't you finish what you started? And he he says well I was just a contractor and and my response to that was baloney you're the captain of the industry that's going to be using these rails when they're finally done so why aren't you in there digging and helping and um, bonding and giving us you know proper estimates and all that sort of uh, thing that would seem to be done and and I believe it's because they make more money off of the cruise ship passengers so they're more focused on Seward and that dock down there that's where the cruise ships come in and so it's a it's a money thing, but Port Mackenzie will not be done unless we can demonstrate to industry that that 14 and a half square miles that we own out there is actually available for an industrial park for use. You know, ports don't make their money on the on the on the money coming in on the tonnage that comes in. They just they just don't. They make money on their acreage when they can lease acres to a a green cement plant or a storage area or a construction company or. Um, a place to store the connexes, whether they be full or empty, or um, you know, cars Safeway, you know, north of the Kinnick River has a place to store their dry good connexes before they ship them out. All, all those kinds of things is where the ports make their money. And of course, we just recently had the multi-gazillion-dollar infrastructure bill passed, and so uh, you know, everybody's looking for their handout. Is the port? Uh, rail extension going to be part of that process? Do you know? Is the state applying for that, or what, what's the what's going on with that? Well, the borough is actually applying for a mega grant from the federal government. They applied for a Build Back Better grant and and were turned down. So, uh, you know, I had amendments for all of the rail spurs, starting from the the full price three ninety three, which was everything on the rail spur all the way up to Fairbanks, including the Titan expansion. Uh, the interior gas utility there that's actually owned by the North Slope uh, Borough, I'm sorry, the uh, Fairbanks Borough. Um, but, uh, you know, I had all these amendments kind of graduating down to, hey, let's just do one spur then. And uh, all of them were voted down, and frankly, they were voted down by the Fairbanks representatives. So, Randy, if you live up there, maybe you could, uh, maybe you could talk to some of your reps and ask them why they did that. Um, but in any case, um, 
you know, it, it's just one of those uh, one of those deals that I believe we we need to finish. And if you look at the port of Alaska, that's had so many that has so so many problems, and then you look at how they just voted for their assembly who control that port. I'm concerned. You know, they they only have 200 or 300 ish acres. We have 14.5 square miles, and hauling double trucks out of downtown Anchorage is a problem. Right. Even even as bad as hauling them down KGB well, Road. So yeah, it makes huge sense to me if we're going to develop the interior. Well, and some of the latest geological reports and everything else is coming out showing that this is not a. I mean, this is kind of a shaky area, right? I mean, they got landslide hazards and everything else. This is not a, uh, you know, this is not as stable as Point McKenzie. And as you said, having to haul everything through downtown or even, you know, in the speeder roads going out to the highway, uh, definitely not as good as a straight shot by rail out of uh, um, out of Point Mac or anything else. So, I mean, why wouldn't we want to do this? Well, I mean, I'm I, the fact that you're just telling me that the Fairbanks legislators voted against it, the one thing that I do support government spending on is infrastructure. It's one of the few things that's actually mandated and that the government should be, you know, should be handling. Um, and yet we've got legislators who are like, oh, that's for my com- – no, never mind. I can't do that. But, you know, we'll spend it on all this other stuff. Right, and you know, I'm specifically looking for a return on investment. That's what on, on infrastructure projects, and you know, I see this one. And and I, Randy's right. I have mentioned before that I read somewhere that fuel oil, heating oil, not gasoline, but heating oil in Fairbanks was going to be close to nine dollars an hour. I'm sorry, a gallon in the next heating season, and and that's uh, you know one of the reasons we're taking a hard look at the interior gas utility and their expansion and their rail spurs. And that sort of thing. I mean, we're not going to be able to fix it in time for the next heating season. But holy cow, you know, Fairbanks it has to be a frustrating place to live. You're 470 miles from the largest natural gas field on the planet, and you're paying nine bucks a gallon for heating oil, or you could be. And I'd be, I'd be nervous living there. So the return on investment for Fairbanks people, especially, is is greater, I think, than. Uh, than most folks. Right, because, I mean, I've had some experience with this, uh, uh, you know, with the gas utility and everything else. I mean, as of right now, yes, Fairbanks has access to gas, but the gas is priced essentially just a few uh, just a few percentage points lower than what heating oil is, barely enough to even justify a conversion from heating oil to natural gas for your heating systems. And so, I mean, you know, you have to have access to a much cheaper source. And I mean, I've, I've, I was telling people this last weekend when I was in Fairbanks, you know, one of the benefits when I moved down uh, south here six, seven years ago was the first thing that I got was, you know, hey, I got a five, six, eight thousand dollar a year raise because I saved over five thousand dollars just in the first eight months of living down uh, here in the, you know, in the, you know, the non the, the paradise portion of Alaska, I guess. Or whatever, you know, five thousand dollars just in my heating price alone. I mean, my my heating bills today are a, a fifth of what they used to be in Fairbanks, and uh, and I mean that's a significant change. This would be something great. I can't imagine why they would vote against even the smallest contingent of this. Not the even not the big three hundred and fifty three million that you were talking about, but even the smallest slice. Why would they do that? 
Well, I suspect, you know, uh, especially, uh, I think, Bart Lebon, it's because I, I attempted to put it in the operating budget instead of the capital budget. So, yes, we all know that this is a capital project, but remember last year we didn't have a capital budget. It all got rolled into the operating budget, and I, right. you know, I had no hope that this was, was going to pass, but I wanted to highlight what I thought was a, a significant uh, uh, area to get a return on investment, sort of a, if you finish it or if you build it, uh, we can attract some industry. We can, uh, you know, maybe the wood chips, which is what it was originally built for, wood chips and coal, uh, maybe those were the wrong ones. Or maybe once we build it, uh, you know, Usabelli will start exporting coal again out of out of state. I do know that Asia is screaming for for coal right now, for uh, steel plants and that sort of stuff. And I'm not sure our coal is exactly the right uh, the right stuff, but. The point is, is we'll never know any of that because nobody looks at the port of uh, of Port Mackenzie. Nobody looks at it as a serious contender because it doesn't have any way to get to it. Right. It needs rail. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Kevin McCabe, uh, thank you. Uh, if you, you have anything else you'd like to talk about here, I can hold you over the break. Or uh, if that was uh, all you wanted to clarify, I'm happy to uh, uh, to let you go. You'd let me know now. Yeah, well, it's up to you, Michael. I, you know, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the budget and some of the amendments yeah. and that sort no, of stuff, I'm, I'm fine. But if uh, okay. if you want to focus on this, I'm good. Good. Well, I'm happy to talk about the budget. It's always good to to talk with my representative, uh, which uh, Kevin is. So it's uh, good to uh, good to have him on board here to talk with us about it. We're going to put him on hold. We're going to be back in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show continues. Common sense, liberty based. Free Thinking Radio. Back with more right after this. It's the Michael Dukes Show. Why not take a quick break? Be right back. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the uh, break right now. Uh, Kevin McCabe uh, is our guest. Um you know, Kevin, again, this is one of the few things that I believe the government should be taking care of is infrastructure. And it seems like something that we have um, kind of fallen down on here in the last few years. We got so consumed by all these other nice-to-have programs, it seems like many of the must-have programs have been kind of pitched to the side. Well, you know, I agree, uh, Michael. I mean, we, we have so many, so much potential in, in Alaska, and we have yet to really develop much of it other than oil to its to its full capacity. And, you know, I've said for years that Alaskans are the, they're absolutely the best people in the world to uh, log or mine or develop our resources because nobody wants to hurt this state. Nobody wants to destroy the environment. Nobody wants to clear-cut logs without a, without a plan to replace them. Nobody wants to dig holes in the ground for coal or gold or anything like that without a plan uh, to renew the state once they're done or to, to even do it uh, in sort of a ecologically sound uh, sound way. I look at the Usabelli mine and, and the way they have uh, reclaimed that up there, and I think, wow, now this is exactly what good stewardship is like, and this is exactly what Alaskans do when they when they build a project and when they... Uh, tap our resources so yeah no i mean it, look it's, we are such a resource it's the diff, it's the difference between conservationists and preservationists right 
Preservationists wants to leave everything exactly as it is, even though change is constant. They seem to ignore that. But conservationists want to use it and then, again, renew it and keep it uh, available and usable for future generations. And that's that's the huge difference here. Right. I, you know, I tell people all the time, I grew up in northern Minnesota where the uh, iron ore mines were, and we used to go swimming in the tailings ponds all the time. And, you know, look at me. I'm all right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, I drank the water. I'm fine. I mean, just ignore the twitch. It's all it's all good. Just ignore the twitch. Um, all right. Well, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to dive into what took place. I mean, you had some great moments on the floor. Uh, I was going to kind of dissect that here over the next week and talk about some of this. Um, but we'll dive into that and we'll dive into some of your again, the highlights and the lowlights of what you saw. Uh, during that process. But let me ask you the same question that I just asked Ben Carpenter a few minutes ago uh, off the air, uh, since we're still in the commercial break right now. You know, hypothetically, if we had had a, you know, if we had had a, a, a Republican majority in the House, and we do have a Republican majority, I don't want to misspeak that, but if the majority in the House was controlled by the Republicans, what kind of difference do you think that that would have, what kind of difference do you think that that would have made? Oh, I think it would be huge. You know, people don't quite understand the uh, the um, the real issue was that at the very beginning of the session, it's a numbers game. You have to have the Republican uh, Republicans in the majority so you can get control of the committees because the committee chairs decide who uh, which bills they hear. So uh, we had some significant bills. If, if frankly, if we were in the majority at the beginning of the year and we controlled the state affairs and a judiciary and finance, we probably already have a pro-life bill uh, on the streets, ready to go, ready to pass, if not passed and signed by the governor already. Um, you know, the PFD would not be an issue. We would have it on the uh, either on a, a 50-50 with the vote of the people or a full PFD, one of the two. Uh, and we would be able to abolish SB 26 if that's what the people wanted us to do, or we would abolish the original statute so there isn't all this confusion every year on what we're going to pay for a PFD. So having control of the committees is key, and you can't do that if you're not in the majority. Yeah, and exactly it. That comes back to, again, the question of, you know, is the charter of changes still relevant? Is changing the players still fixing the problem? I mean, we've changed out a big chunk of the legislature. Over 35% of the legislature has been changed out, yet we're still having the same problems. Is it strictly because we are changing out the wrong people? Well, I think it's, you know, I think probably Ben Carpenter, I didn't listen to uh, what he said. I was uh, I was sleeping, but um, I think uh, if, I, if I know Ben as well as I think I do, he probably said, you know, it's not Republican and Democrat anymore. It's it's statist and, uh, you know, big government and small government people. So you right. have to ask the Republican that you want to change out or if you that you want to vote in. Is he for a big government? Is he a big government Republican or is he a small government right. Republican? I put it. Uh, I think that's the key. I put it this way. And he said he was going to take it and run with it. I said, is it a pro-government spend politician or is it a pro-private sector spend politician? And I think that is the that's the big difference there for sure. Um, all right, Kevin. Uh, right, and you know, twenty seconds. Go. Tom Tom McKay said it best. Tom McKay said it best in his floor speech, and a lot of people kind of might not have seen that, but 
he said we need a robust private sector and the hundred twenty billion dollar permanent fund that they're saving for is not going to create that. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, hold the line. Kevin McCabe continues to be our guest, the Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like this show, share this show, like and follow the show page, hit the subscribe button. Well, hit the follow on Twitch. We'll here we go. All right, continuing ahead here, Kevin McCabe is our guest, GOP state rep for District 8 up in the Big Lake area um, and parts of Connecticut Bay Road. And my representative, I'm happy to have him on the program to talk about everything that went down during this last uh, debate here on the House and the budgets. Uh, 88 amendments, Kevin, 88 amendments of which, what, six, seven, eight of them got passed you guys attempted to put a full PFD or a, or a statutory PFD and a 50-50 PFD in there many times, dozens of times, amendments and amendments to amendments, and yet it's no joy in Mudville for those of us who are fighting for, again, more of a private sector protection than a public sector protection. Um, let's walk through the kind of the process and what happened and your thoughts on it. Sure, yeah, 88 amendments, it's not the record. I think at one point, uh, I think maybe Tammy Wilson, a couple, three years ago, 300 amendments. 246 amendments. It's certainly not a record, but uh, a great number of those amendments we we looked at, the minority looked at and thought, well, maybe we need to get the budget done first if we're going to try to get out of here in 90 days. And so... uh, some of us, Ben and I and a few others, tabled some. Some of them were uh, pulled uh, before they were even offered Sarah Vance's amendment. And we wanted to get to the meat of the amendments that we wanted. Christopher Kirk's Amendment 44 was was an important amendment that we had to put in there, was the removing uh, funding for abortion, which there's always an amendment every year in there. And, and we worked pretty hard to get that done, and that passed. Uh, there were a few others paying the oil tax credits that Sarah Rasmussen uh, put in there. That passed as well, and then the next day she was gone, and Adam Wool rescinded his vote, and then it failed. So uh, her full uh, refunding uh, of the tax credits failed. So there's all those kinds of uh, political maneuvering and political procedures and that sort of stuff. A lot of people don't understand them, and and I, I, you know, I will tell you, I'm getting hammered by people that don't understand them. They don't understand how it works. They won't call me and they won't email me directly. They'll just post something on Facebook to uh, attempt to discredit me. But, um, you know, that, that's it. Kind of goes with the territory, I guess. I, I wouldn't want Harold to think my skin is all that thin. So, <laughs> um, in any case, yeah, it was a very interesting and in, and in almost none of the almost none of the amendments that the minority put forth were passed. Right, almost all of them that they put forth were passed. The amendment were were passed. No, almost none of them passed. Almost none so, of them passed. Okay, uh, that's what I was saying. And that's typical. That's what. Yeah, that's what happened last year as well. You know, they didn't they didn't really give serious consideration to any of our amendments, even though we removed the more um, frivolous is the wrong word, but the more dilatory amendments um, by putting them on the table. Carpenter and I did trying to focus on those that were important, such as 44, Christopher Kirk's amendment. Um, but uh, 
Um, as you say, no joy in Mudville. Yeah, exactly. No joy in Mudville for sure. <clears throat> so um, as we look at this and we look at the size and scope of the budget that uh, we're looking at this year compared to past years and everything else, even taking out the $1.2 billion in forward funding, which Ben said, you know, in the last hour, his his he indicated, he didn't come out right and say, but he indicated, he goes, look, at least we could keep these people from coming back and, and poor-mouthing us and saying, oh, we need to be taken care of because at least they're forward-funded now so they could stop the discussions on the pink slips and everything else. Doesn't stop the lobbyists, but at least that's the one bright side, I guess, to that. But anyway, that's I guess that's a whole other discussion. But taking out, even taking out the forward-funding uh, is still a significant increase. I mean, 10%, 12%, that's still a significant increase over the previous year. Uh, and especially it seems like it's tone deaf when you look at what's going on in the private sector where most things are contracting uh, because of the effect of the recession and then the pandemic and then all the things associated with that. Right. And, and you know, and we've, we, we're using money that could be better spent by Alaskans to inflation-proof our, our corpus, our PF. So we're putting putting it where we can't get at it and calling it inflation-proofing. And if you really look at the structure of the permanent fund, it's self-inflation proofs. It's that's the way it's set up. No other fund really does that endowment fund like this. And it's their attempt. It's the other side, Bert Stedman and those folks that are controlling things. It's their attempt to get the permanent fund to a hundred or now they're up to $120 billion and turn us into a socialist state, you know, where the, the endowment fund provides all the money for government. Nobody has to work. The private sector can go pound sand and, uh, and we'll just uh, sit back and enjoy our national park, the national park of Alaska. Right. Exactly. Which I think some people, I mean, they, they, they probably wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree with that. Even though as a state, we could become self-sufficient if we would just develop our natural resources properly, we could be self-sufficient even unto ourselves. I mean, forget about, you know, we wouldn't need federal money if we could develop our own resources without all the, 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 the hand waggling and the, and the, uh, and the arched eyebrows and everything. We could probably do that ourselves. Absolutely. And, you know, my, my chief of staff will be angry with me if I don't get the, uh, the fuzzy bunny comment in there, but we want uh, trails and fuzzy bunnies, apparently, or some folks do, provided by the government and not uh, not infrastructure, not roads and bridges and rails and that sort of thing that can actually help our private sector to grow. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate part of uh, what Tom McKay actually said on his speech. Uh, we're coming down to the last two minutes here, and I did want to talk about McKay's speech. Your thoughts on the, on the things that he was saying and, uh, you know, and the overall intent. And, I mean, are you in full agreement with that? Give me your, your final thoughts here in the last two minutes. Yeah, Tom McKay is a very thoughtful guy, and, and he uh, he's an oil field engineer by trade, one of six, I think, in the state, and, uh, you know, certified engineers. And, and he's given this a lot of thought, and, he, you know, he doesn't – he's not as uh, – um, willing to get up there and speak as is some, but when he gets up, I listen because he is he has a very um, good way of looking at things and a very articulate way of putting it out there. And he's exactly right. We need to develop our private sector. We need to do what our constitution demands and develop our resources. That's the only reason Congress let us be a state after 10 years of negotiating and we didn't have enough people and we didn't have enough industry and we were too far away and they said, well, you're a resource state so you can develop your resources and that will help. 
prevent the federal government from having to, uh, you know, having to pay for you all the time, making you a, a dependent state. So, Except for the fact, of course, then they stood in the way of almost any development that we've had <laughs> since then, right? I mean, you could be independent, right. Oh, right. Except, except here's the teeth that you'll have to suckle on and bow to our whims because we're not going to allow you now to develop all that stuff. That's the conundrum. That is the conundrum right now. Right, and we're, you know, we're working on those as well with the 404 primacy and the RICRA bills and, and being thwarted again by the by the minority, you know, I'm sorry, by the majority. The minority would love to see, and the governor would love to see those bills go through so we could take water primacy and navigable water definition away from the federal government. Yeah. It's taking 10 years to, I think they told me it took 10 years to declare Lake Basharoff, the second largest lake in in the state of Alaska to declare it as a navigable waterway that you can put a boat in. <laughs> That's, That's crazy. It's insane. All right. Well, Kevin McCabe, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you coming on board. Hold the line real quick. Folks, we're out of time. Tomorrow is Firearms Friday. We look forward to uh, talking to you then, getting a chance to talk about 2A and President Biden's restrictions on ghost guns. That's all coming up tomorrow. All right, final bite at the apple for Kevin McCabe. Any final thoughts here? I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you have the floor here for a minute. Yeah, well, I appreciate the the opportunity to sort of pontificate, uh, uh, Michael. It's been as frustrating uh, this year almost as it was last year, um, and we even sort of demonstrated Carpenter and I did that we were willing to, um, you know, put some of the more uh, superfluous or dilatorious amendments on the table while we focused on the hard ones and the ones that were that we wanted that we cared about getting passed and most of those were intent language all of them were intent language and you know they really have no force of law and they really weren't designed to do anything other than allow representatives allow us all to get up and speak and well it's it's a pathway to, to focus on the important ones yeah it's a pathway to demagoguery is what it is right so, well, right. I, I mean, I, so, appreci- I appreciate you guys focusing on what was important. I mean, that's the thing. We've got certain things, especially things that have force of law and can make a difference. I appreciate uh, that. You know, I appreciate you guys getting into that. That's what we needed. Yeah, well, thanks. I, there's, there are those out there that don't appreciate that. And I don't know if you've been on Facebook much, but I'm getting hammered as a as a uh, uh, abortion monger and a anti-Second Amendment guy. And I think you know me well enough to know that none of those are true and uh so that's hence the reason why on friday and talk about the second amendment right hence the reason why i spend very little time on social media except for the show but uh, other than that other than that it's a cesspit that i would rather i would rather eat a bar of soap than uh than spend much more time on social media for that reason alone all right kevin uh thank you for coming on my friend i'm sorry go ahead all right well, Facebook's becoming as bad as Twitter lately, so it's uh, you're probably right. It's probably better just to stay off it and focus on the job. Yep, exactly. Uh, the outrageous fortune, the slings and arrows of people out there who are not doing the job uh, shouldn't affect you at this point, my friend. That's all I could say. All right, right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank well, you thanks. so much uh, for coming on board. We will talk to you probably next week sometime. Thank you for coming on. All right, Michael, thanks. Folks, we're out of time. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great day.
we've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show.